the court, la cour. Bonjour à tous. Good morning, everyone. In the matter of Her Majesty the Queen versus Marc-André Boulanger for the appellant, Her Majesty the Queen, Jason Vassel-Levesque and Jade Coderre. For the respondent, Marc-André Boulanger, Nicolas Saint-Jacques, and Lida Sarah Nouret. Mr. Levesque. Chief Justice, Justices, good morning. As indicated, I'm appearing on behalf of the appellant in this case, and my first submission has to do with the 84-day delay, and my colleague will deal with the second part of our argument, the 112-day delay. If you have any questions, feel free to jump in and interrupt me. I'll be pleased to answer them. We'd like to begin by talking about the 84-day delay, and the first argument is that there was no error of law in the trial decision. What's important to understand is that what the respondent mentioned was that the respondent admitted knowing that the delay was attributable to them. And then when it comes to the admission by the respondent, they recognized that their tardy presentation of the motion to unredact caused an 84-day delay. Between March and May 2018, that delay was caused by the defense due to their tardy request or tardy motion to have the affidavit unredacted. And even if that was a legitimate uh, request, the defense admitted that they could have made that, moved that motion earlier and it would have caused less delay. And that's the important part of the defense's admission in this matter. The motion could have been moved earlier to avoid further delay. Mr. Levesque, uh, sorry for interrupting you. I'm taking you up on your invitation. Could that motion have been reviewed by the judge? Was the full motion binding on the judge? Justice Cote, thank you for the question. That's a good one. Obviously, the qualification of a delay is a question of law, and parties cannot bind a judge on a question of law. However, even the respondent conceded that the qualification of a delay is highly fact-based. And in this case, my submission is that a party can admit to certain facts that can then be qualified by the judge uh, and then the delay can be attributed to one party or the other. What's interesting in the McPherson case is that the, there was no information that, to suggest that the prosecution was under any misunderstanding and so their concession was that it was an institutional delay because the court couldn't accommodate the parties to hear the trial more quickly. In another case, the qualification was based on undisputed facts. Mr. Levesque, in this debate, is this ultimately useful given the finding of Justice Chamberlain that at any event, 
the judge's decision not to attribute the full delay to the defense for that period was completely flawed. Given the short time you have, would we not be better to focus on that? Absolutely, Justice Kazerer, I fully agree with you. You're quite right. The, there are more conclusive uh, matters we can turn to, and I will do that immediately. Obviously, the appellant fully agrees with Justice Chamberlain's minority decision at the Court of Appeal in Quebec, and particularly 182 to 185 of his decision. Let's refer to 184, which summarizes, in the appellant's view, the, the reasoning in paragraphs 31 to 35, rather. He said that the defense decided, chose to take a gradual step-by-step -step approach and didn't advise the prosecution or the judge what the next steps would be until each step was completed. And so the uh, fairly straightforward, unredacting exercise was dragged on for months and that delayed the debate on the validity of the search warrant. So that conduct was illegitimate and had an impact on the timing of the debate over the search warrant. Just let me interrupt you there. You say that had an impact on the deliberation around the search warrant, but in paragraph 104, the majority said that there was no reason to believe that the challenge to the search warrant w could reasonably have occurred before May 1st. And that's why the majority judges did not attribute the full delay of 84 days to, to the defense because they said in any event, the challenge to the warrant could not have been heard any earlier, one way or the other. What do you have to say to that? Is there any reason to doubt what the majority said? Justice Cote, thank you for your question, and I'd be very pleased to answer it. I'll just move a little further ahead in my arguments. With all due respect, the, and you're right, the majority did uh, mention that, but I do not share their vision of the matter. And what is my submission this morning is that, on the contrary, the two motions to unredact should have been heard at the same time and could have. On January 8, 2018, there were four dates offered to the parties for the first motion to unredact. So on January 8, 2018, that was the first date that was rejected by the respondent. And then the first hearing occurred on January 17, 2018. It was a one-hour hearing. And then that was carried over for another one-hour date. And then finally, February 13th for a 30-minute hearing. So the motion to unredact the OTA, ITO rather, the information to obtain, could have occurred much earlier. 
So the entire hearing of the motion took less than 30 minutes. So it seems obvious to the appellant that that motion should have been dealt with at the same time. And that's where I disagree with the majority decision on this. Beyond the step-by-step -step approach, wasn't the point also that the defense's approach that their motion to unredact the information to obtain and the challenge to the search warrant itself that these two matters were connected that was the defense's position and that's how they explained their step-by-step -step approach but that is what caused the delay do you see what I'm saying the defense was of the view that they couldn't proceed with the motion to unredact the affidavit in support of the search warrant without dealing with the second motion because they were connected. Uh, am I mistaken? Thank you, Justice Kazerer, for your question. In, it's my understanding that it was unnecessary to deal with the motion to unredact uh, the ITO before dealing with the motion to unredact the surveillance reports. Both could have been handled at the same time. And there's a point I perhaps should have made earlier. In a case where the respondent imposes conditions, uh, so on November 14th, 2017, the appellant indicated that it was their understanding that they were ready to set dates for trial. And then there was another motion by the respondent to review the redactions to the surveillance reports. And then on December 4th, 2017, the trial, or at least the motion to challenge, should have been set down for hearing. But at that time, the respondent imposed conditions. They said they wanted to finish up with the uh, motion to unredact the surveillance reports. And then in March, further conditions were imposed by the defense, and that was around checking into the affidavit and that they were expecting something back from the appellant. So three times the respondent imposed conditions on setting the date for the challenge. And on December 7th, 2016, when the packet was unsealed, the respondent obtained the redacted version of the affidavit and then requested 11 weeks. In February 2017, a uh, preliminary inquiry was set down for almost 11 months later and nothing was raised, no issues were raised by the defense about the affidavit. And it was only on March 1st, 2018, that was the first time an issue was raised with the affidavit or the information to obtain. And it was only March 20th that a motion to unredact was filed. And on March 20th, for the first time, the respondent proposed to set dates for production, the productions and disclosure. Another important point to, to mention is that 
as early as December 17, 2018, the appellant said that the surveillance reports had been cleaned up and there were, simp there were only two disputed passages left that remained to be agreed on. So one in each of the two surveillance reports, one passage in each. And according to the transcript of the preliminary inquiry, that had all been filed and all that was left, there was very little that was disputed that was still left to be dealt with. And that, this was a result of the step-by-step -step approach, uh, the very gradual approach that the defense had taken. And that's what caused the delay. And this is a delay that the defense took responsibility for. So on March 1st, 2018, there was a review of the redactions. Was that for the court to confirm that the redactions were still a live issue? Was that the purpose of the defense's request for that review? I'd like to thank you once again for the question, Justice Cote. As I recall, the purpose of the March 1st hearing was about something other than what you suggested. So at trial, that was the first time an issue was raised by the defense about redactions to the affidavit. That's about a 15-month delay before that issue was raised. Excusez-moi, je voulais simplement revenir à la question en question, donc. En fait, au-delà du 15... Beyond the, uh, apart from the 15 months, I understand that the ITO was available in November 2016, and the motion was filed March 1st, 2018. March 20th, 2018. Those are the periods in question. Yes, that's right. In fact, the first issue raised with the affidavit was on March 1st, and the dates were set for March 20th. In this matter, between February 2018 and May 2018, the only issue being dealt with was the unredaction of the affidavit. So there was there was the time to prepare, the time to move the motion, and even when the case management judge was very, was, was pressuring the parties to respond quickly, on April 3rd, the defense refused, rejected the date suggested, and that was about the transcripts. So that's the problem here with the respondent's conduct in this matter. It's uh, illegitimate conduct in the sense of the, in, within the meaning of the Cody decision. And I would turn to Cody now because it's relevant. In paragraph 33, the defense is supposed to actively defend and, and raise issues. And the defense has to use the court's time efficiently. And with all due respect for the period in question here, that's not what happened. And 
This court has called for a change in culture in Jordan, and that's not what happened in this case. Even if something was acceptable before Jordan, certain practices are no longer acceptable. And I would submit that that's exactly what happened in this case when it came to dealing with the motions to unredact. Well, that cultural shift applies to everyone, Mr. Levesque, all players in the justice system. So the defense, the crown, and the judge. You talked about the judge earlier, but the judge could have been more proactive too. Absolutely. I recognize that. There are obligations on all parties in the court system. But what I wanted to focus on here was that the prosecution made itself available all throughout. This is not a file that was neglected. The Crown was willing to make itself available on short notice to deal with these motions because even though main counsel wasn't available, other crowns made themselves available to replace. Uh, so it's my submission that during this time from November 2017 to June 2018, the case management offered even freed up dates Mr. Levesque, you only have 12 or 13 minutes left. Are you going to talk about the delay from May 21st to September 10th? Actually, Justice Brown, my colleague, uh, Ms. Kader, was going to deal with that. Oh, okay. Sorry. If you have no more questions. No, I have a question. I'll give what do you say to the uh, respondent's argument stating that the Crown had the opportunity to make arguments as to the attribution of the first delay before the managing, the case management judge and also and the, before the trial judge during the, the motion for unreasonable delay? Because you quoted things in your notes on uh, paragraph 70 of your brief and perhaps the jurisprudence you quoted were, were a bit different because of that. Justice Martin, thank you for your question. This is also a very relevant uh, aspect which may not be as determinative uh, but remains relevant for this case. Now, this request by the respondent in the, during the, for, before the trial judge was never uh, litigious. This was not an issue that during trial gave any indication that it could be challenged by any of the participants. So, when the appellant briefly addresses the delay, and we're just talking about one page of notes in the tr uh, transcribed notes, and I disagree with the statement that this had been debated. If the appellant had been informed that this would be a litigious, uh, litigious issue, then they're certain that things would have been raised earlier and explanations would have been different. With respect to that issue, if the trial judge thought that that was a, a mistake in qualification then, or attribution, then the, it should have been mentioned in the basis for decisions and explained why this acknowledgement was erroneous. And very respectfully, I do not think that motivation was sufficient to explain why the judge did not follow what parties suggested. 
to him. On that issue, Justice Martin, I don't know who would be better placed than the parties themselves to assess the impact of their own behavior. That's a very important aspect, especially since it deals with events that were before uh, that judge was uh, named the case management judge. So, if you have no further questions for the first, uh, as to the first delay, I will now cede the floor to my colleague. Thank you, uh, thank you, Mr. Kader. Chief Justice, Justices, good morning. You will have understood by now that the appellant's uh, arguments are founded on 64 and 65 of the Jordan decision. There is a delay if the court is ready to proceed, of course, according to uh, reasonable time delays for, uh, delays for preparation. Now, this goes, uh, goes away from the Godin approach. And since a reasonable amount of time for preparing, is all part of a preparing an adequate def defense. Obviously, that requires a qualitative assessment of the file. Uh, Madam Kader, I'm going to interrupt you for a moment. You mentioned the Jordan case, which is quite appropriate, but uh, do you make a distinction between the situation in which the defense is not available uh, at certain uh, suggested dates to set the trial, or if the defense is not available for a continuation of the trial with other suggested dates. Thank you for your question, Justice Cote. Firstly, no, I do not make such a distinction and I will explain why. It seems to me that the principle stated in this, uh, by, the, by the court in this case is that the delay is attributable to the defense if the, the defense counsel is unavailable, except if they need extra and reasonable preparation time. In this context, there are two aspects in my answer. First of all, the respondent's claim and the majority ju judges, I do not agree that the continuation of the trial was because of the circumstances under the first element. And secondly, it seems to me that this principle is clear. The defense did not receive a reasonable time for preparation before that date of the September 17th. What would you go ahead, Justice Cazirer? This is to follow up on your excellent question, dear colleague. In paragraph 64 of the Jordan decision, I think we could examine whether the respondent's counsel was unavailable in this case. In your brief, you talk about. In your condensed brief, you talk about an exchange between uh, Maître Roy and the court and the prosecution, but you don't provide all of the conversation, just some extracts. Now, the respondent provides more information, but you t the, there's an exchange in which Maître Roy says, it's true that I'm not available between the May uh, 21st and 31st, but, and now I'm on page 167, of the transcription. She says, I have several dates available before and after, meaning that I have dates available in May and the entire month of June I am available. A little later, two pages later, she says, speaking to the clerk who is 
writing down these, uh, these dates and delays in case there's a Jordan challenge. I had a great deal of availability in April, May, and June. So my question is, it's true that the Jordan decision tells us that when the defense counsel is unavailable, we're not talking about error, but, uh, but of course the defense will uh, pay the costs. But in this case, counsel was available. She conceded that uh, before the appeals court that for that there was a 10-day period that sh that had that should be attributed to her, but f for the period before and after those 10 days, so during the summer and before September 10th, there's nothing. The court did not take that availability into account, and it seems to me. I wonder if Jordan would allow, under such circumstances, the, co the conclusion of the, uh, the, that, it, that takes into account the very specific d period of unavailability and reach a different conclusion. Uh, thank you for your question, Justice Kazir. First, your question is interesting, but you talk about sharing responsibility. The appellant claims that there was a, there was responsibility shared insofar as between January 10th, so the beginning of the two days, uh, two-day trial that was set, as the uh, and May 2019. Now that delay is attributable to this, to the prosecution since uh, no one was available during those uh, circumstances uh, during during that time period. Now, the appellant believes that the Jordan provides a concrete analysis for uh, such situations. In that sense, the appellant mentions frequently the deference to the trial judge who had the opportunity to do a full analysis of the case. And you said that the respondent's uh, counsel before the trial judge mentioned that she had dates available in April, a few dates available in May, and a few more in May, um, and some more in June. But we don't know exactly when that person was available. We don't know. So when it comes to attributing delays, it becomes difficult to lend oneself to this exercise in the first place. And secondly, that this decision was made in April and the counsel was not available in April. I'm not saying she wasn't available for the entire month of April, but once again, I'm coming back to the fact that the effective availabilities of the respondent's counsel were not specific. Now on page, eight, on paragraph 83, we say that the net effect of this still brings you under the threshold for uh, that is mentioned in the Jordan decision. Now when it comes to the defense, this is an effort that goes beyond a symbolic effort in terms of uh, stating her availability and trying to resolve the uh, problems with delays. I would like to come back to, uh, the Chief Justice talked about the shared responsibility amongst all parties. Other colleagues have mentioned that too. The reason for which we find ourselves in this situation in May, it's not because one day the defense, defense counsel woke up and said, I'm not available anymore. Parties had asked, both parties had asked the judge in November 2018 to add a third date 
parties had asked the judge and the judge refused. So should we not go back to that moment in time to see who is responsible for what and to decide whether or not there will be a, sh a sharing of responsibility and if so, how it will be allocated? The, the judge knew in 2018 that those two days would not be sufficient and both parties' counsel asked for a third day. So how, what do we do with that? Before the judge's unwillingness. Thank you for your question, Justice. You're right, there is a third suggested date by the parties. But let's not forget about the scheduling of such hearings. On January 9, 2000, 2019, for the first, on the first day of the, of the trial, where they were hearing uh, arguments for excluding evidence, the respondent asked, for, asked to hear the decision for, uh, on the exclusion of evidence. And that's when things get moved, over, moved forward to September, or moved back to September, rather. On uh, January 10th, and now I'm talking about the exclusion of evidence uh, motion, there was an hour and a half left during which the prosecution could have dealt with its own evidence. And I'm telling you this because when we look at what took place at trial in September 2019, that's the amount of time it took for the prosecution to manage its own evidence and present it. So there would have been plenty of time to complete the evidence on, on the prosecution's part uh, during those two days, rather than waiting to see what happened uh, to the motion to exclude evidence. Also, the defense's behavior has to be taken into account under these circumstances. There were never acknowledgments, never uh, was the uh, Appellant told that, the, that, this, that this evidence had been excluded or not. So, to ensure that the defense is not responsible for this delay would send the message that ultimately the defense can benefit from its own inaction, as in this case. But, Madame Claudet, the Chief Justice said earlier that all parties bear some responsibility and must be proactive. The court, in choosing and in insisting upon the, uh, the date of September 10th, and the Crown, if the judge hadn't had the Jordan decision in their minds, then you have the responsibility. I really wonder, on January 9th, when counsel says, I'm prepared to choose another date, and then it's sent, then it moves forward to September 10th. It seems to me that the prosecution and the court also have a responsibility. They, have, they bear some responsibility when it comes to this. So the entire responsibility for the whole period, we're talking about this whole period from May 21st to September 10th, that for it all to be attributed to the defense is that truly what Jordan had in, in mind on, in paragraph 64 that you quote and that Cody completes by emphasizing a shared responsibility on all, on all sides? I thank you for your question, 
Justice, and I will, re I will respond quickly because I'm running out of time. Uh, given the questions that you've been asked, I'm going to grant you five more minutes. Please, uh, please finish your arguments. Thank you, Chief Justice. So to answer your question, indeed, and I'm not going to claim that the appellant had no responsibility when it came to delays, that the judge was uh, bore no responsibility for the delays, because that is not the ideology in my mind, and I think you are in, in a better position than I am to say so. But this is not the ideology that is being, uh, or the message being sent in the Jordan decision. That being said, insofar as the defense in this case, and I'm coming back to the principle of deference, there is a limit uh, as to the power to be before the appeals court, it's a case of facts, and the ju that judge considered all the facts. And when it comes to the defense's behavior, they never said, and the prosecution and the judge, they never said the prosecution could have said this or the judge could have said that. So if ultimately the position is that everything was admissible, then two days of tri trial might have been enough, maybe only a couple more hours would have been necessary. So if the defense and the judge in the trial decision, if the counsel for the respondent had been able to discuss with counsel, Crown counsel, then two hours would have been enough to deal with the outstanding matters. And that period, the extra time, was directly attributable to the defense. And this never had to do with the evidence going to the merits, and the trial judge took that all into account. They're purely factual matters, and that's why, with all, with, well, it's purely factual, but the description or qualification of the delay uh, under Jordan is a mixed question of fact and law. That's true, and I think the Yusuf decision is a good answer to that question. The underlying facts are, of course, relevant, but the qualification of the delay is a question of law, and the trial judge did clearly and correctly identify the applicable uh, standard, and I think that's an important factor, and that's why I think there should be deference shown towards the trial judge's qualification of the delays in this case. And the defense took a wait-and-see, step-by-step, gradual approach. Uh, that was the finding, and that's why I would focus on those elements and the, the deference that is owing the trial judge's decision, Justice Brown. Does that complete your arguments? Well, if you don't have any other questions, I've, I've said everything I intended to say, and thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Saint-Jacques. Monsieur le juge en chef, mesdames les juges. Chief Justice, justices. Over 38 months is what it took to complete this trial. A fairly straightforward, simple trial. But there was all kinds of wait and see, 11th hour decisions by the Crown. And like the majority at the Court of Appeal said, 
the uh, trial the, the the trial judge's description of of the situation was very accurate there was no game and the crown had no strategy uh, the first delay had to do with the presentation of two legitimate motions by the defense and there was also a delay stemming from counsel's unavailability at the end of trial counsel if you don't mind why did the defense take 15 months to raise the issue with redactions chief justice on that point i'd like to draw your attention to first of all the fact that the responsibility for the redactions is a shared responsibility the case law includes the garofoli case the crown has to realize that when there's a challenge to a warrant and part of the judicial authorization for the warrant is redacted there will necessarily be a debate about this whether the need for the sixth step or not and that question will come up sooner or later in challenging the legality of the search what i would submit is that the it's up to the crown to check all throughout the process of redaction and to determine whether or not the privileges still apply to redactions all throughout and the privilege invoked in this case was the ongoing investigation privilege and that can change over time it can be it can be amended such that a privilege like an informer privilege or an ongoing investigation privilege that's the type of privilege that is likely to evolve over time so it's incumbent on the crown to keep checking that the privilege still applies and that the redaction is still appropriate you're talking about the crown's responsibility and that's all well and good i don't disagree but what about the defense's responsibility are you saying that the defense under the same circumstances has no duty to be proactive no chief justice i'm not saying that the defense has no duty of proactivity but what i would say and we said in our factum that the issue could have been raised more quickly by the defense the issue of the redactions to the affidavit but the review of the surveillance reports was something that the trial judge should have been doing and so the issue if the issue had been raised before November 2017 there was no competent court to deal with the issue beforehand so to answer your question uh, and to set out the circumstances correctly when this was set down for trial in November 2017 the respondent from that point on showed proactivity the council announced that there would be a challenge to the search warrant and the grounds for arrest if the issue of redaction had been raised earlier the it, at any rate the defense had as of November 2017 signaled that there would be a challenge to the search warrant well I asked your friend the same question the majority 
on appeal said that in any event there was always going to be a challenge to the search warrant and the motion to challenge the search warrant there's nothing to indicate that that hearing could reasonably have been heard before May 1st the majority appears to be saying that look even if the motion to unredact could have been heard sooner the fact is that the challenge to the search warrant itself could not have been heard earlier and don't just say the appeal uh, the majority were right uh, is it true that that could have been heard sooner and if so how much sooner thank you justice cote for your question the paragraphs you're referring to are 102 to 104 of the quebec court of appeals decision and to answer your question i think we have to look at the hearings from march 1st 2018 to understand what followed and when it might have been possible to have an earlier hearing on the redactions and on the search warrant itself so it's our submission that even if you consider the motion to review the redaction even if you consider that tardy and even if you blame the defense for that it's impossible to attribute the delays uh, uh, to the defense when it comes to the hearing the motion on the search warrant itself when you look at the March 20th 2018 hearing the privilege of an ongoing investigation was raised and the two dates that were suggested were May 1st on the redactions and May 24th 2018 for the challenge to the search warrant but in setting those dates and this is very important I'd refer you to t tab 13 of our condensed book page 63 lines 22 and 25 from line 22 to 25 so it says there in setting the date for the redactions debate to May 1st the trial judge had to force the docket he said I'm only available for one hour and on March 20th 2018 the challenge to the search warrant uh, was expected to take longer so is it not it was unlikely at that point that the challenge to the search warrant would have been heard in May 2018 and when you look at the transcript from March 20th you say that the earliest po it's you can see that the earliest possible date was May 9th 2018 which was the first date suggested by the trial judge to hear the challenge to the search warrant so May 20, March 20th was the, the date and the first subsequent date was May 9th so it's our submission respectfully that from March 20th to the first available date to hear the challenge to the search warrant May 9th that period cannot be attributed to the respondent because that was the minimum delay on the facts uh, that, that was the earliest possible date for the defense to present its challenge to the search warrant so if you consider our motion to have been tardy we can at least consider March 20th to May 9th which is a 19-day period we can at least subtract that and we can also subtract the period from May 9th which was the first available date for the challenge to the search warrant to May 24th which is a 15-day period 
So in total, you can deduct 34 days from the net delay. So if you deduct those 34 days, you're still above the 30-month presumptive ceiling under Jordan. So in any case, it's my respectful submission that if the net delay were to get it under 30 months, you'd have to deduct more than the periods in question. Because you have to consider not just the motion to unredact, but also the motion attacking the search warrant. And no one so far has mentioned the fact that, that nobody has suggested that that motion was tardy. Mr. Saint-Jacques, can I just interrupt just to make sure I understand the facts correctly? Because it was my understanding that the defense at the hearing of March, on March 20th, the defense attempted to explain that there was a connection between the motion to unredact and the motion going to the validity of the search warrant. So the wait-and-see attitude that Justice Chamberlain referred to, the, the gradual step-by-step -step, uh, approach, everything was delayed until each step was completed. Rather than dealing with the redactions to the ITO and at the earliest possible occasion. And he said this goes back to December 2016. What do you have to say to that idea about this uh, gradual step-by-step -step or wait-and-see approach taken by the defense? First of all, Justice Kazura, I'd like to thank you for the question. There is indeed a connection between the motion challenging the search warrant and the motion challenging the redactions to the information to obtain and the affidavit supporting the search warrant. And if you look at the reasons of Justice Dagenet, the trial judge, you can see that the surveillance reports were uh, filed as well as the affidavit in support of the search warrant. So the issue of redaction was intimately connected to the challenge to the search warrant itself. And coming back to the Garofoli decision, if we had received a judicial summary from the appellant and if there was a clear indication that step six of Garofoli would be waived, then under the circumstances, much of the delay could have been avoided because if the appellant doesn't invoke step six of Garofoli, then the redactions, as we understand them today, if the redactions had nothing to do with the respondent or had no bearing on the accused, then much of the delay could have been completely avoided under the circumstances. So yes, indeed, there was a connection. The default, of course, wants to know what it's all about. And on March 20th, when this, was, when this came to light and when Justice Dagenet rejected the unredaction uh, motion, then at that point, the defense would have been in a better position to know whether or not the information was relevant to its challenge to the search warrant. And then the respondent could have said that we had no intention of proceeding to step six under Garofoli and it would have had no, there would have been no point. I understand 
your point about the legitimacy, legitimacy of your approach, but it's the manner, and this distinction is made in Jordan. It's the manner in which you proceeded with the motion to unredact. That's where the shoe pinches. You did not act with diligence, according to Justice Chamberlain. You took a step-by-step, wait-and-see approach. And it's not really a matter of fault, but it would explain the delay. The delay for something that was otherwise legit. Thank you for your question, Justice Kessler. To answer you, I submitfully... I respectfully submit that, once again, it's about shared responsibility between the respondent and, and the appellant, because it's a public responsibility to unredact following, to unredact the material following a request that's granted. And then in November 2017, it's already an issue that's debated during the challenge. Now, I am well aware that the request could have been made sooner by the defense, but even if you arrive at the conclusion that the request was tardy, and I come back to Justice Cote's question earlier, the delay that was caused could, could only be understood as being between March 1st and uh, 30th, 2018, and then in November uh, 9th and 24th, 2018. So even if you retain the appellant's position, in which the respondent is responsible for the request for uh, disclosure and for unredacting, which was tardy. The facts show that, in fact, only uh, some delay can be attributed to that. So what you're saying here then this morning is that we should attribute to the defense is 34 days for that first delay out of the, I call it the 84-day delay. So you're saying that we should, we, you recognize that 34 of those days can be attributed to the defense? Just so, Justice Cote. So then why do the, then why, and why do the, um, did the majority uh, rule that it was 28 days? Well, I would refer you to a page 104, or paragraph 104 of the, the Court of Appeals decision. They said there was no reason to believe that the challenge as to the validity of the search warrant could have, taken place reasonably before May 1st, which is the date suggested by the court. The request could have been heard that day and earlier than May 28th, and the responsibility acknowledged by the defense should be 28 rather than 24 days. The Court of Appeals majority decision emphasized that it might have been possible to hear the motion uh, regarding the search warrant on May 1st, 2018 to replace the uh, unre uh, motion to unredact request. J judge Dagenet, the trial judge, indicates that they forced the docket for on May 1st just to hear the, un the motion to unredact. So, if you look at the all of the transcription for March 20th, 2018, you can see that the first real date on which the search warrants challenge uh, motion could have been heard is May 9th, 2018, which was the first date suggested by uh, by Mr. Dejeuner, or Judge, Judge Dejeuner, rather. I would like to address the issue of the acknowledgement by the defense. 
as to the attribution of delays, saying that the defense or the respondent was responsible for the 84-day delay. I respectfully submit that with the review I've just submitted to the court, it seems obvious that the uh, attribution of the entire delay between March, first and, uh, between March and May 2018 was deficient and did not reflect the reality of how the trial uh, played out. The trial judge was not limited by this issue, which was a, a question of law. And the explanations provided by the respondent turned on the f uh, had to do with the fact that the request for unredacted to unread motion to unredact was tardy, but explains that the other motion challenging the search warrant was uh, was not was uh, it was claimed was tardy and was illegitimate. Even in the Laplan decision, when uh, arguments are made to that effect, in and I, I refer you to uh, tab 16, page, lines 1 to 25. It's, they say that a, that a case management judge was appointed, Judge, judge Dagenet, and both parties uh, be, uh, acted with celerity for all to move forward as quickly as possible. So the case was moved forward. So even the appellate recognizes that the time required to review the, the motions uh, were dealt with quickly and there's no, by both parties. There is no indication by the appellant that that motion was tardy at any time. But several times it is mentioned that the motion to unredact was tardy indeed. So I respectfully submit that given all these explanations, given the transcriptions, the tables provided by both parties that also summarized the development of the trial, it wasn't clear for the Court of Appeal, the, the majority, what the, what, what the first judge, uh, Judge Garneau, wanted to mean. I think, I'm not sure the ma majority judges uh, uh, completely understood that, or, or were able to completely well understand that. It was said we can determine the implicit reasoning of the trial judge, but if you read the grounds for that decision uh, by that judge, it's not clear. Chief Justice, indeed, the grounds could have been more clear. You're right, but if you look at the trial judge's uh, grounds, Underpinning the decision on para paragraph uh, 1670, they talk about the period from March, in March 2018, and one could understand that this, uh, some uh, some delays could be attributed to the defense during that period. But at the very end of paragraph 74, he says that on May 1st, 2018, there is a uh, a motion to unredact which is rejected and then says that delay is not attributable to the defense. So, in the opinion of the trial judge, there was a minimal delay during that 84-day period that was not uh, attributable to the defense. So, one could conclude by looking at the entirety of the of the case, especially since the search warrant motion was not tardy, the entirety of that delay should not have been attributed to the defense and that that was uh, the judge's intention. 
unless you have other questions for me with respect to the first issue uh, at issue, I will move on to the 112-day period, which is also at issue. Go ahead. With respect to the second period, earlier we discussed the unavailability of counsel, of defense counsel. So I'd like to come back to the transcriptions in uh, that accompany the uh, that are included in my brief, especially on page 169, uh, tab 15, where it is stated that. The Respondent's Council was available in April, in May, and that was before May 21st because she was not available between May 21st and 31st and she was also available in June. I submit that those comments by Defence Council are important because the dates are being, being suggested would not have brought the case beyond, uh, to, would not have met the threshold for the Jordan case if those dates had been chosen. Those, the dates suggested by the Respondent's Council, the case so. taken place and would not have reached the Jordan threshold. Therefore, it reflects Defence's in, intentions and the Respondent's intention, intentions to uh, undergo trial under, uh, without trying to meet the Jordan threshold. And this is not a situation in which the defense is proposing dates that would bring them beyond that threshold or making themselves unavailable a great deal of the time for dates suggested by the court. Many dates were suggested, in fact. This is why I'd like to draw your attention to the fact that the defense, defense counsel was unavailable in part because she had another trial for a different client, for Mr. Levantis. So when a trial is continued, defense counsel has to choose which client will take precedence with respect to uh, their rights under Section 10B of the Charter. It's not possible when it comes to uh, the continuation of a trial to, to be replaced as counsel when a date is rejected by the defense. This is a delay that should be attributed to the defense. That may be true when it's time to set the trial, the, the initial trial date, because the defense counsel could be replaced then. There are things one can do. But this trial was being continued and therefore counsel found themselves forced to choose between two clients. Under those circumstances, and this is why we submit in our brief that we, uh, a qualitative approach must be adopted to ensure that delays that are caused are directly or solely attributed to the defense or attributable to the defense. And this is according to the Jordan decision once again. In paragraph 103, the court also recently stated that in this case, the parties indicated that a third trial day would be necessary to complete the trial, and the judge did try to keep the trial to two days, which did not work for several reasons, and I will come back to those in a moment. The respondent also emphasizes the fact that the appellant in oral, present, in oral arguments said that they could have completed uh, its evidence, uh, submitted all of its evidence on January 10th, but 
This disregards the fact that the appellant, I'd say two and a half weeks before the trial was, before the trial date, uh, indicated that an expert witness was going to be called who was unavailable and without sending uh, advance notice as per the criminal code, section 57.3 of the criminal code, in which defense requires adequate notice. Once again, the council makes no expert of the, no, no mention of the expert witness, and then in June 2018, once again, no mention is made of this expert witness. So, even though the trial had taken place in a more complete manner on January 10th, in fact, the appellant could not have presented all of their evidence beca because they decided to call an expert witness who was unavailable on that day. The respondent could have refused. Mr. Saint-Jacques, uh, we're running out of time. And in listening to you, I hear, uh, I can hear a, a bl uh, you laying blame, which seems to be underlying the exercise uh, you are undertaking here. You want to uh, lay the blame on the at the door of the uh, of pro the prosecution. It seems like the, to me that the logic, and this is I'm thinking of paragraph 64 in the Jordan decision. It's not about assigning blame. The logic is improving the smooth running of the justice system overall. And when the court is available and when prosecution is, uh, counsel is available and defense counsel is not, then the delay is attributed to the defense. That's the rule. This is a rule that is just as beneficial to defense as it is to uh, the prosecution, depending on the case. And it's not about assigning blame. It's just about understanding people's availability. So under the circumstances of this case, It is true that the 10 days at issue do not tell, paint, paint the whole picture, that there is shared responsibility for these delays. That is true. It seems to me if you're focusing on those 10 days, uh, does, not, does not follow Jordan's logic as stated in paragraph 64. Before you answer that question, I invite you to do so. I just would like you to uh, follow. I, I would like to follow up on uh, Judge Kazira's question. You do seem to be trying to assign blame, and that does uh, seem to be what the majority decision said in the Court of Appeals as well. Whereas in the Jordan case, there are two exceptions. Uh, the, uh, these are very complex files uh, with exceptional circumstances. Now, this was quite a simple trial. There's one, I believe there are four charges. There's one accused. It was supposed to be a two-day trial. It's fairly academic for the Court of Appeals to say, no, we need a prosecution plan because there's a police informant in this case. Well, it's quite theoretical and quite academic. Beyond assigning blame to re respond to to address my colleague Kazarez's uh, question, should we not be looking at the entire uh, set of circumstances rather than honing in on some very, a few very tiny ones? Thank you, Justices, for your questions. The idea here is not to pin the blame on anyone. Perhaps I'm 
not doing a very good job of expressing myself. That's not the point. The point is to determine the cause of the delays because in Jordan, it was a matter of determining whether the defense was solely responsible and directly responsible. And that's what paragraph 64 deals with for the responsible for the delay. So I would encourage you to look at the file as a whole and on the facts, the defense was not directly or solely responsible for the delays in this case. The prosecution, for example, could not have completed adducing all of its evidence, for example. And the continuation was not the fault of the defense. The defense was not responsible for that delay under the circumstances. So when the time comes to look at the defense counsel's availability and when the time comes to determine whether that period can be attributed to defense counsel because of her unavailability, that's where I'm coming from when I submit that you have to look at all the circumstances, including the fact that there was still evidence to be disclosed. It was disclosed just a few days uh, before the continuation date in September. So under the circumstances, was the Crown truly ready to proceed? There are some delays that under the circumstances simply cannot be attributed to the defense. So it's not about finger pointing or blame, the blame game. It's more a matter of determining whether the delay should be attributed to the defense. Inaudible. I'm willing to give you a few more minutes if you need them. Well, I'd just like to say that on the facts, the unavailability of defense counsel did result in a 112-day delay, but all throughout the trial, even uh, the, the dates were proposed to hold the trial within the presumptive ceiling. So I would say that on the basis of all the circumstances, it's impossible to attribute the 112-day uh, delay to the defense uh, in keeping with Jordan. So unless you have any other questions, justices, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you, Mr. Jacques. Reply, Mr. Levesque or Ms. Coderre. Hello again, Chief Justice. I have no reply. I don't want to repeat what I've already said. Obviously, the appellant maintains all of its assertions, and I'd simply like to mention uh, that it has been a pleasure to present this case before the court today. Thank you. Chief Justice, if you would allow, if I could just extend, uh, if I could piggyback on what uh, was just said. Perhaps Ms. Coder might want to respond to this, but when it comes to the 112 days, there is this notion of a shared responsibility and instead of having a winner-takes-all, zero-sum game kind of approach, is there any room 
in your reading of paragraph 64 of Jordan, is there any room for that kind of sharing of the responsibility? Good morning, Justice Kazara. Uh, we were just trying to sort ourselves out here. Um, to answer your question, I think there are cases where that might lend themselves to that, but the principle is that the defense cannot benefit from its own inaction. So I'm respectfully of the view that that sharing of responsibility was already done in the sense that some of the delay was attributed to the Crown. And as for the rest, I think it was rightly attributed exclusively to the defense. And in terms of setting a point where at trial, the defense counsel might have been available. We just simply don't have that information at this point. You're right that there was no hesitation in attributing some of the delay to the Crown. But when it comes to the 112 days, beyond the 10 days that the respondent has accepted, do we have to say that as soon as defense counsel is found to have been unavailable, the matter is closed? Well, I would say that the entire delay has to be attributed to the respondent, especially because, and I'm repeating a bit what I already said, had we known that it was only going to be two hours, we could have set a date earlier. But unfortunately, in the circumstances of this case, we just simply don't have enough information to speculate. Thank you very much. I would ask counsel to remain available. Thank you. The court, la cour. Merci. Thank you. And welcome back. Thank you for your patience. And thank you also for the arguments you presented. The court is ready to rule. And I would ask Justices Kaz Justice Kazara to read the reasons for decision. The Crown, <coughs> Crown has appealed a decision against a Quebec Court of Appeal decision in favor of the respondent on a violation of the accused's right to be tried within a reasonable time. There was a delay of 35 months or 1,070 days, which exceeds the presumptive ceiling uh, set out in the Jordan decision of the Supreme Court in 2016. The court is called upon to rule on two periods of delay, one of 84 days and the other of 112 days, whether those periods should be attributed to the defense. For the 84-day period, we share the view of Justice Cham Chamberlain dissenting at the Court of Appeal, de la conduite who found that the delay was due to the illegitimate conduct of the defense and therefore should be attributed to the defense. The characterization of the delay is, of course, a question of law, but the trial judge was not bound by the respondent's decision in that regard. 
or the respondent's concession in that regard. But there was no explanation of why that period was rejected, no implicit or explicit explanation, as was the finding of Justice Chamberlain. In the absence of any submissions from the parties on that specific point, it was particularly important for the trial judge to provide reasons enabling us to understand his decision and why he did not decide, uh, why he decided as he did. With respect, that was not done. He, he did not do so. And as the dissenting judge implied, it's not enough for the respondent's actions to be legitimate in order for the delay not to be attributed to that party. In the case at bar, the way the, def the defense conducted itself with respect to the motion to unredact is what was uh, the problem. The motion to unredact was made tardily only 15 months after the proceedings began and Justice Chamberlain f found so in his reason uh, relying on R versus Rice and rightly so and also see R versus Cody paragraph 32 under the circumstances the entire delay of 84 days from March 1st to May 20th, 2018 is entirely attributable to the defense. The motion to unredact the affidavit in support of the search warrant and the search warrant itself were intrinsically linked because in the words of the defense, it was impossible, impossible to proceed with one without first settling the issues relating to the other. The respondent delayed the, by, by proceeding first with the motion to unredact before uh, challenging the search warrant itself, the defense contributed to the delay. A finalement a été entendu de, euh, le 24 mai 2018 heard on May 24th, 2018. As for the second period of delay, the second disputed period, yeah. the 112 days between May 21st and September 10th, 2019, the Crown's appeal, grounds for appeal have to be rejected. There's no reason to interfere. The, the Crown argued that it was, that rather there's no reason to interfere with that decision because the defense was not solely responsible for the delay when the court and the crown are ready to proceed and the defense is not any resulting delay is attributable to the defense all players in the criminal justice system including the defense have to take a proactive approach in order to avoid unnecessary delay in reaching a ruling on the merits and that was the finding in Cody. But circumstances leading to a finding of a shared responsibility may arise. 
and may result in the entire delay not necessarily being attributed to the defense. In the case at bar, the parties asked in November 18th, they asked the trial judge to add a third day to the trial dates, and that, was, that request was rejected. On the first day of tri trial in January 2019, it became clear that the two dates provided would be insufficient, in part because of a change in the Crown's strategy. And when further dates were discussed, counsel for the defence informed the judge and the Crown that she would be unavailable on certain days. The judge proposed a date in September of 2019 and insisted on that date without considering the possibility of continuing the trial at an earlier date where party, the parties were available. The judge thus knew that an additional day would be necessary as far back as November 2018 and in January 2019, in, so in November 2018 he knew an extra day would be necessary and in January 2019 when exploring potential dates for the con continuation of the trial, the possibility of exceeding the Jordan presumptive ceiling should have been taken into account. KJM 2020, paragraph 61. That said, it wasn't until August 7th, 2019, that the respondent informed the Crown of its intent to move for a stay under Section 11B. So the delays were caused by a, a change in strategy an institutional delay and the court's lack of initiative in seeking earlier dates. Under the circumstances, the specific circumstances of this case, we are of the view that it would be unreasonable to share responsibility for the 112-day delay. The Crown should only be, the defence rather, should only be held responsible for half of that delay because of her unavailability. And from September, uh, when the when the real trial, when the trial actually did get underway, and this is also pursuant to KGM, paragraph six, 76. Even using that calculation, hypothetically, the total delay was over. Uh, the the defense would only be attributed 51 days of delay, but the respondent should also be attributed a 10-day delay pursuant to the defense's concession. Uh, ultimately, apart from the periods identified by the majority, the 84-day delay from March to, to May and the 61-day delay from May 31st, 2019 to June 1st, J June 1st to July 20th, uh, these periods should also be attributed to the defense. And this brings the total to 225 days attributable to the defense and some 900 days or 31 months attributable to the prosecution. So the Jordan ceiling is exceeded and the delay is presumed 
unreasonable and there are there were no circumstances to justify the, the surpassing of the ceiling such a situation should not recur today and for these on these grounds the court dismisses the appeal and restores the decision of the trial judge thank you very much Thanks, everyone. The court is adjourned until tomorrow at 9.30. Thank you.